Hello, folks, and welcome to e-commerce Q&A. This is the podcast where store owners, directors of e-commerce, and e-commerce managers can stay up to date on the latest tools and technologies in e-commerce. Our guest today is Nathan Hirsch, and Nathan is the CEO and founder at FreeUp, which is an amazing company. We've actually interviewed Nathan before, and today we're going to talk about a very interesting topic that delves further back into his history. Nathan, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Absolutely. First of all, is it Nate or Nathan? <laughs> Nathan's fine. Cool, cool. You know, I was looking at your LinkedIn, and you're in uh, you're in Winter Park, is that right? Yep, right outside Orlando, Florida. Cool, cool. Yeah, Winter Park. I, you being from Colorado, I was thinking more of uh, a different type of Winter Park, but um, that's great. So <laughs> whatever Florida Winter Park can be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it should be like a, almost a joke, right? It'd be Summer Park in the winter? Is that? Uh, sorry, I've never been to yeah. Florida, believe it or not. So uh, yeah. Yeah, I just moved here five years ago, so maybe that's what they were going for. Where were you before? Massachusetts, and I went to school in Connecticut, so I've seen snow. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So today's topic I'm very excited about, not because it's a new topic, for, but it's because it's one that is so important for e-commerce of all flavors, and the topic is dropshipping. We want to talk about dropshipping. We want to talk about optimization when it comes to dropshipping. That's the whole reason people do dropshipping typically is to free themselves up and give themselves more time and to work with the margins. Now, you, sir, are a very successful dropshipper. Can you tell us a little bit about why we'd want to talk to you about dropshipping? Sure. So I started off as a broke college kid in my dorm room, and I got mad that the bookstore was ripping me off. I was buying textbooks for hundreds of dollars and selling them back for pennies on the dollar. So I was like, all right, I can learn how to do this myself and and cut them off. And before I knew it, I had lines out my door of people trying to sell me their textbooks because I was paying more than the bookstore. I was holding on to the book, selling them at the end of next semester, and then at the beginning of next semester, and pretty much finding all these different ways to sell them from, from different bookstores to eBay to... Amazon. And then when I found Amazon, I fell in love with it. I thought it was way better than eBay. I became addicted addicted and obsessed to it and really wanted to figure out how to maximize it and how to make money. But I was also a relatively broke college student. So besides the money that I made on textbooks, I didn't really have anything to buy inventory. And I didn't know anything about buying inventory. So to me, I, I kept trying to brainstorm how I could start an Amazon business without any kind of initial cash investment. And I came up with the idea of dropshipping years before I even knew what dropshipping was called. It was honestly like four or five years later that I was into the company that someone told me, hey, you're, you're running a dropship model. So my concept was I would sell stuff I don't have, buy it from someplace that had it, get it shipped to my customer, and then handle all customer service outside of it. And it was a real trial and error, a trial and error experiment. I remember I sold this uh, this small toy laptop on Amazon. I actually had it drop shipped from Walmart to the customer, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna try it. Worst case scenario, I'm out like 25 bucks, and and I learned a lesson. If the customer complains, and, and I won't do this again, or it, best case, I'm onto something here. And the customer never complained. I sent her a few emails to follow up and make sure she was happy. She never responded, and I was like, all right, let's. I just made ten dollars like let's start listing lots of different products from different websites so months later i was running a multi-million dollar amazon dropship business out of my college dorm room and, and it really only expanded from there wait you said months later how many months later within six months to a year nice nice 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was really hiring. I started hiring people to just list products all day. I remember being in the back of my college class just listing baby products on Amazon and having people look at me like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> and it was just a lot of trial and error. I mean, I started off trying to sell like DVDs and different video game systems and realized that the margin wasn't good for that. And I found this niche in baby products, home goods, and toys. And from there, it was about building a team, which is why I'm so passionate about hiring because they team good teams make you look really good and make you get a, on top of the world business-wise and really expanding to get away from retailers and, and onto more suppliers and building those good supplier relationships, which is a whole nother part of dropshipping. Yeah. And I definitely will we'll be linking back to the previous episode where we talked a lot more about that topic and feel free to bring it in as much as you need to. Because like you said, it's like it's the people that make it possible to scale a company. It's not just the tech. And that's going to be true even as we move into a world that's dominated by task work that's being done by smart robots. Exactly. I mean, there, there's so many manual processes of a dropship business and, and I built a lot of software to do it. But the thing about when we built the software, it was never like, okay, we built the software. Now let's terminate all the people that were doing that task. It's like, there's so much to do. Let's take those people and move them to the next mm-hmm. role to make this next process more efficient. And then once they create a good process for that, we create software for it and then move on to the next one. And, and really what the technology does is it lets you take the lower level stuff off your plate and focus more more on building new processes to build more technology down the line. Exactly. So it's basically like operationalizing everything and then helping your people essentially become smarter and smarter, which is a boon to them, I would say. Exactly. I mean, Connor and I, Connor, my business partner and I um, have a strategy that we never do something for more than three or four months before passing it off of our plate. So when we were first coming up with our order placement system, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. When you're doing orders, you want to check for pricing. You want to find the manufacturer. You want to do, you want to check the address and make sure you're not going to have issues down the line because anything you can do to be proactive will only help you. So you create this order system with these checklists and you teach order people to do it and then you you master it and then you add technology to it it to make it even easier for the order guys and faster for them to process orders. Nathan, I find that there's an incredible disparity between the, um, the QA that goes into order fulfillment in from company to company, particularly those that are using 3PLs and other forms of distribution. How did you find the perfect level of customer service care? I don't know what you want to call that, but that whole mix of making sure that the order goes out right, making sure the customer's happy, that entire sequence of events there. What did you do to find that sweet spot where you weren't spending too much time and money and you were able to preserve margin, but you were still ensuring a very, very high degree of success? Yeah, so I've only used my own systems and processes and really any software that I built besides one repricing software, AppEagle, that I really like because I didn't really want to use a... Actually, I experimented with building repricing software and I kind of gave up and figured that theirs was going to be better than my end result anyway. But outside of that, all the other stuff we built has been stuff that... Processes that we built and turned into software because my understanding is that um, anything that I buy out there, whether it's the channel advisors of the world or whatever it is, they're, they're never as good as what your custom system can be because it might be 80% of what I want, but it's impossible to get it to 100 because they're not willing to make adjustments to their software to complement your business for the most part. So most of the stuff that I did was processes I created based on trial and error and doing it over and over again and being proactive and thinking of every possible thing that could go wrong and then giving that to developers to create a software that fits for my business, but might not necessarily fit for someone else's. Interesting. I've got a lot of questions there about the software side, but I want to start with the, uh, maybe go back to the beginning. Thinking about your story, if you had to do it over again, you know, what, what, are, what are the first steps that you would say would go into starting and managing a dropshipping company that could potentially scale? And let me ask you also, 
would you even do it again? Like, do you believe in the dropshipping model still, or would you go a different direction now? Yeah, so I know a lot of people that have been able to start dropshipping models. A lot of them are my clients at FreeUp, um, and they do it very successfully. But it's a totally different environment than it was back in the day. I mean, when I was selling these products on Amazon, it was like me and four other people on all these listings. Now it's you've got hundreds of sellers. You've got all these manufacturers that, that are... M- better educated on Amazon. Some of them won't even let you sell there. And you really have to, if you're going to drop ship, you almost have to build your own website and drive traffic there. I mean, when I take a step back, the, the biggest thing that I learned that cost me a lot of time and energy up front that I would do differently is being stricter on who you work with. So what I eventually did was I created these guidelines that if a manufacturer is going to work with us, they have to follow these guidelines. They have to have tracking numbers. They need to ship stuff when they say they're going to ship stuff. They need to respond to emails within 24 hours every single time. They need to have a return policy that actually works with our business model and works with Amazon, which is what we were selling on, but it would work with whatever platform you're selling on or whatever return policy for your, you want to offer your customers because there's, there's nothing worse than telling your customer that they can't return something in this day and age. So coming up with that criteria and really vetting out all those other manufacturers that don't follow it is really the only way to drop ship nowadays because either you're selling on Amazon and if you're not if you don't have quality control you're not going to be selling there very long because they're going to suspend you or you're selling on your own website and if your manufacturers are sloppy and they don't care about your end customer you're you're going to get a terrible reputation and your business is going to tank so you really have to you're really only as good as your suppliers are so talk to me more about that because that seems like the nub of the issue how do you find good suppliers for a dropshipping scenario? You network, you build relationships, and you sell, sell, sell. I mean, I, I what I did was I hired a lead gen team of Phil, people in the Philippines that were making a low dollar an hour, and we would just have them do research and come up with these large spreadsheets of manufacturers. And then we would have someone go through them and be like, oh, this person doesn't allow sales on Amazon. This person has a bad reputation online. Whatever it is to kind of vet those people out. And then the last, the last group of, of manufacturers, those are the people that we would cold email, cold call, follow up with until we got a definite no or got a meeting. And once we got a meeting and we realized it could be beneficial, then we had these standards that we needed them to follow in order to work with us. So you're, you're taking these thousands of manufacturers and you just keep narrowing them down and down and down. And it takes up a lot of time and effort. And that's where kind of building a team comes in to help you do that. Because if you're doing it all yourself, it really is an impossible task. It wouldn't have been able to get done. And you mentioned manufacturers. So were you exclusively buying from manufacturers directly? So when I started off, I was buying from retailers, and I did that for years. I mean, as Amazon got stricter, we migrated to manufacturers, so now we only buy from manufacturers. And now, so talk to me about the business now. The business is still running Portlight, I can see. Is that what it's still called, Portlight? Yep, still running. I mean, it kind of runs without me. VAs do everything from the order fulfillment to the to listings to the customer service. I mean, it's at a good level. What, what I've found with Amazon is when you get too big, that's when trouble starts to happen, especially with drop shipping and quality control. So we're at a good place. It's profitable. It, it runs well. I get to focus my time on free up, which is something I'm very passionate about because when, with my Amazon dropship business, yes, I can make money and sell products and help my internal team. But with free up, I get to help 500 plus workers provide for their family and I get to build relationships with them. I get to help thousands of clients and meet different influencers and help people achieve their dreams and their passion and build their own dropshipping business. So for me, that's more rewarding. And I also see more potential. I always preach diversity in my book and and every podcast I go on, but just having those multiple revenue streams and not being 100% relying on Amazon is a good business decision. You know, one thing I've been seeing is that for companies that are trying to get out there, 
a lot of times there's, let's take the model of a startup. So a startup will come up with typically one good idea, right? They're either going to come up with an innovative product that they kickstart or they, they have like a unique way that they're curating things or it could just be a, a different take on an existing model. And one thing I'm seeing a lot is, is e-commerce companies wanting to supplement their core product offering that maybe is more innovative or, or they're manufacturing in somewhere themselves with product that they source and drop ship. So I think, you know, as we're, as we're thinking about this model, the idea of using drop shipping as a, a supplemental way for a company that doesn't typically do that might be a really good angle. Do you have any input on that? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, anything you can do to diversify your business is good. I mean, whether you stay in Amazon and you just find find different ways to diversify your product line, or maybe you open an eBay store and a Shopify store, or you open a second business as you once you get your Amazon business to a certain level, I mean, you can reinvest in something else. Or if you just own small percentages of different companies, it's just always good to figure out how to continue diversifying because you never know when that main product line of yours might go down, when a new competitor comes up, when Amazon might kick you off or when something happens in the economy. There's just so many things that can go on with the business. You, the, the task that you have as a business owner is to constantly reduce risk by diversifying. Absolutely. So speaking of that, I'm only seeing, I'm not probably doing this right. I'm just Googling here instead of asking you what URLs I should go to. So I've, I can see the Portlight store on Amazon. Is there an eBay store still? Or is there a, a direct URL to an e-commerce store? Nope. So my Amazon business is my Amazon business and all my time is focused on free up. Got it. But back in the day, did you have several channels or just the one? No, not really. I mean, we, we started off a little bit on eBay. And we did we like launched our own site, but we ended up consolidating it. So I, what I thought the question you were asking before was what was like the worst business decision I made, <laughs> and that what that was was um, opening up an office because I added overhead to mm-hmm. dropshipping business that just needed no overhead. So mm-hmm. I, it was completely unnecessary. So when we opened an, up an office, we we're like, yeah, we're going to expand. We're going to be the next Amazon of the world, and, and that didn't happen. And so once we kind of hit that peak where we we're like, all right, this it doesn't make sense to kind of reinvest these resources, that's when we kind of scaled it back down, got rid of the office, made it all remote, focused on our Amazon store, which was booming. And it kind of allowed me to have another passion of mine, another idea I had to um, to focus on free up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Nathan, I've got a very specific question for you. What strategy did you use for determining what your markup should be? And I, I know you mentioned that you use all internal processes. So I'm very curious to hear what you, what you came up with to, to do that equation. Yeah, so it's all trial and error. I mean, almost everything I do in business is trial and error. I what I try to avoid is learning necessarily from the experts because what I found is yes, you should take bits and pieces of what the experts are saying and mm-hmm. apply them to mm-hmm. your business. But if you just copy them, everyone copies them and, mm-hmm. and no one makes any money. So mm-hmm. what I try to do is trial and error. I try to push the limits. Hey, how high can we sell this product? And then once we figure out that, hey, the dropship business works between that 10 to 20% margin and even getting 20 is pushing it, then we're like, okay, now let's come up with different formulas for the the price range of zero to 50, the price range of 50 Mm -hmm. to 100, and really dissect it and go down. And then you take those formulas for each one and you trial and error them and you adjust them accordingly. So really, that's the only way I do it is by finding market data of real live customers. And yeah, you might might spend a few months kind of trying to figure it out. But then once you identify what your target is and what they're willing to pay and what your optimal margins are, then you have these formulas in place. And they're not just some generic formula. They're formulas that, that are customized to your business that you can use long term. And these formulas are, are things that you built into your software or into some sort of operationalized process? Or how, how did you scale the business via these formulas? 
Yes, they're, they're all, we start off with macros and then eventually moved it to software. So have this software, still using it? Yes. Cool. How does it compare to like off the shelf Amazon repricing software and that kind of thing? Like the order fulfillment and the, and like the getting orders and the sorting them and the sending them, that we have our software for. I mentioned before that for the repricing, we use AppEagle. We mm. love them. So okay. we built the pricing software. We added pricing formula to it and it was okay, but we still found that AppEagle was better. They're really good at what they do. They mm. focus on it. So mm. um, we migrated to them, but outside of just using our software, we have our own formulas that are connected to macros that are connected mm. to AppEagle. So right. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, but. that conceptually answers it. I'm very, very curious in seeing how that was actually played out, but that might be a little bit of a trade secret that you might not want to keep. I don't know. So this is really fascinating. Can you tell me tell me more about this whole transition that you went from? You had the office, and then you said, no, that's not going to work. We're going to go everything remote. And I'm kind of guessing, tell me if I'm wrong, but is it right in me assuming that FreeUp was something that came out of you realizing that you're really good at operationalizing things and then having people work on them remotely? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I so I, I liked hiring. I, I was all, when I found up to, when, I, when I found Upwork, a friend of mine on my softball team told me about it. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. I was like, I'm going to build an Upwork army. It was mm. called an Odesk army, and so I I spent so much time just interviewing these people and finding these all-star workers. And a lot of those people still work with me six years later Mm -hmm. and they're fantastic. And but what I realized is all of a sudden as I was hiring more and more, all that time that I was spending building process and expanding the business all of a sudden switched over to HR time. And I remember that I was sitting in my office one day after going through like three different interviews and I just hired someone after we had spent weeks interviewing them and they quit after like one day. And I was just reading more resumes that I was pissed and I just threw something against the wall. And I was like, there's got to be a better way. I can't go to Upwork anymore and post a job and just filter through all these people. So that's when the idea really materialized that I could create a marketplace that was better, that I could use my ability to create good systems to make it more efficient and also to protect the clients because I know what clients want. I know what clients hate. I know every single good and bad thing that's happened when it's come to hiring. So when I created FreeUp, the concept was, instead of being a marketplace where as a client you post a job and all these people throw applications at you and you have to decide is we'll, we'll vet people into the marketplace. So we get hundreds of applicants every week. We have a great interview process based on my eight years of hiring. We have 15 pages of communication guidelines our workers have to memorize and get tested on. So there is that standardization that you always have that same experience. And then we back it up on the back end. So if the clients have an issue, instead of having to fire someone and get a new worker, they can tell us and they get a new worker right away and we cover those hours. And if they quit, we cover all retraining costs and all replacement costs. And it's incredibly hands-on to make sure as a business owner, you spend as little time on HR as you possibly can and as much time expanding and focusing on the things in your business that you want to do. And that's really what I wanted when I was back hiring all these people. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so interesting to me. <clears throat> you know, We started out talking about basically creating repeatable systems and then turning those into software products. And I think a lot of people think of that idea as so beautiful because it's so like sterile in a sense, you know, you're taking something that could be relational and need a bunch of emails and contact and handshakes and all that. And it's becoming this completely code based thing. But then if you look at where your business has actually gone and what you're focused on now, you've actually gone more towards the the helping people be effective, which I think is cool because software is one thing, but it's ultimately people that we care about. Right. And it's people that we want to, to work with and, and we're relational beings. So how do you, Maybe coming back to the drop shipping topic, which is obviously tied in again because we're all we're, we're mainly concerned about optimizing our businesses, preserving margin, and having a good a good life as a result. What are some maybe some some final thoughts that you'd have around drop shipping? If you could give people 
three three do's and three three don'ts who are thinking about sure. using dropshipping probably as a supplemental thing to their company, or maybe there's going to be still some windows to do a full dropshipping model. Sure. So uh, the biggest do is the client isn't always right, but it's in your best interest to make the client or the customer happy, especially your initial customers, because yeah. you're essentially using them as a test. You're dropshipping products from this manufacturer. At the beginning, you're really crossing your fingers. Every time you sign up a new manufacturer, when those first orders go out, you're hoping that those work out. So you have to be on high alert. You need to make sure that if the customer complains, you find out why, you figure out how to fix it, and you figure out how to make that customer happy so you can make money down the line. Two would be creating those manufacturer systems that um, I told you about, making sure that they're giving tracking numbers and shipping on time and answering emails and stuff like that, and really holding them accountable and not being afraid to cut off manufacturers that aren't meeting your incredibly high standards that you have to have. And then the third is figuring out where you where you can actually find a niche. You can't go, you can't do what I did and just kind of go out and sell everything. It doesn't work anymore. You have to figure out what niches there isn't a lot of competition, where what people are buying, what time of year it is different outside factors that contribute to it and really find something that you can grab a hold on and really make money on long term. In terms of the don'ts, everything has to be process driven. You, you can't go in and just hire someone on day one, throw them into it and just be like, hey, like you're processing orders and doing customer service and, and you're kind of doing it your way. There has to be a your way to do it. There's your way to get a tracking number and give it to a customer. There's your way to get the client, the customer's information and pass it to the manufacturer. And it should be the same thing all the time, even down to the hour of the day that's worked. Hey, it's 9 a.m. every morning. That's when orders go out to the manufacturer. Hey, it's 11. That's when we check tracking numbers. So it has to be incredibly systematic. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. That's really helpful. Cool. And then I guess the other don't would just be focus on packaging. It's, it's that one part of the business that everyone forgets about. They're, they have these products, they have a customer base, or they found a marketplace, they've listed everything, they built everything. They know that the, if the customer opens a product that they'll like it, but they always forget how is the product being packaged? How is it being shipped? Is the product actually going to arrive damaged? Because uh, especially if you sell on Amazon, Amazon doesn't want to hear if UPS messed up or my manufacturer messed up. It's, hey, you messed up. You have to package it better. So the last Last thing that we talked about with manufacturers all the time was how are you actually packaging these products? How are you making sure they're safe? Are you selling $1,000 products in glass and barely investing anything in packaging? Hey, let's increase the prices and make sure that we don't have issues because I'm the one that has to deal with it at the end of the day. So that's something that I always make people focus on. And people who lose sight of that end up dealing with a lot of complaints and ruining a lot of relationships. Mm, yeah, not something you want to do when you're starting off or any at any point along the way. Well, this has been great. Nathan, I wonder if you could go ahead and leave us with a couple of things. Number one, what's the best way that our listeners can connect with you? If you don't mind, if somebody has a quick question about dropshipping or something related, or, or of course, about FreeUp, is there a way that people could, can talk to you directly? And then two is, are there any other resources or, or, or anything else you'd like to, to plug? Yeah, sure. So right on our website, freeup.com with three E's, my calendar is right at the top. You can book a time to talk with me directly. I'd love to talk to you about your business and how I can help you um, or even give advice on just pointing you in the right direction, even if you're not ready to hire or use FreeUp yet. I love talking to business owners and networking and figuring out ways to, to work together. You can also check us out on social media, um, FreeUp on Facebook. You can check out the online hiring mastermind group. We post a lot of great stuff about using remote workers and building processes and systems that actually work. Um, you can check out my business, my book, Free Up Your Business. We talk a lot about that business that I that I grew up with in college and that I grew and all the different good things and bad things that happened along the way that really shaped me as an entrepreneur. And then lastly, 
right on freeup.com. You can sign up as a client. It's free. There's no monthly fee. Mention this podcast. You get a dollar off your first worker forever. And you can honestly just keep it in your back pocket. And if you want to hire in the future or you just want to meet some workers with no commitment to hire, you're welcome to request a worker at any time. And that's a dollar off per hour, a dollar off per per. Yep, a dollar off your first worker's hourly rate forever. Oh my gosh, I'm signing up right now. <laughs> awesome. Well, Nathan, this is fabulous. We're going to include all these links that were just mentioned in the show notes. And everyone, we have something else to leave you with as well. With Celery, we really want to understand what store owners are feeling in terms of pain right now. Is it wondering how to deal with Amazon? Is it something about your technology? Is it lack of sales, lack of traffic, lack of conversion rate? Obviously, it's going to be different for a lot of people, but we're assembling a massive survey that we're going to share the results with everyone with. So what we want you to do is go to celery.com forward slash survey, S-E-L-L-R-Y dot com forward slash survey. And there you'll be able to fill out a form and we'll be super respectful of your data. We're not going to spam you or sell your data, obviously. And what we want to do is fill out that form and then we'll come back to you with the results once we get enough respondents. That's going to help us guide the content of this show as we go forward, as well as uh, we, we might have some ideas in the future to uh, come up with amazing things like, like free up or probably not free up because they're already doing that, but you get the picture. We want to help people who are listening to this show and in general, anybody doing e-commerce to be more effective at that. So, and I know that Nathan can relate to that. Nate, thank you so much for joining us. Second time, that should tell you that we really enjoyed you the first time and we have this time. <laughs> awesome. I appreciate it, guys. Yep. All right, talk to you later. And again, everyone, you can go to ecommerceqa.com for the show notes. If you want to email us directly, you can go to just send us an email to podcast at celery.com. Again, that's podcast at S-E-L-L-R-Y.com. And we'll leave you there. Keep selling. 